0: Welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, joined as always by the Lewis to my Clark,
1: Brandon. How very, very fitting. Uh Uh-huh. See, brother? Yeah, that was uh, well played. I've been
0: thinking about that ever (laughs)
1: since you headed... Out west how was it? It was awesome It took a better part of the Lewis and Clark trail really to get there so yeah yeah it was great to uh, uh, yeah I had a blast went all the way to Washington by car
0: what was tell t- tell me about one memorable part?
1: Ah, all right. Well, there's so many, because we, we took, uh we, you know, went across and took the gorge, actually, the the Oregon-Washington Gorge for a better part of the state, or the border until the gorge. Mm-hmm. And then we stayed at an organic farm for two nights uh, oh, near, near cool. the city of Washougal. And uh, there's was about 40 acres of land kind of, you know, in the gorge area. Um, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Got a see goats uh sheep (laughs) chickens cows uh llamas all that sort of thing got a huge tour of the place by the owners they're wonderful people and uh got to stay in a little cabin they have tucked away in the woods you know kind of tucked away from everything so it's real private for a couple nights and uh got fresh goat's milk got Mm. fresh goat cheese uh chevre i believe it's called yep yep. um got uh fresh uh fresh beef from the from the cattle so So it's pretty cool. cool uh Goat's milk is shockingly not good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mean just the milk, straight yeah, up yeah. milk without no cheese? Yeah, involved. the,
1: the yeah. unpasteurized goat milk was uh, was a bit heavy, but the, the cheese was fantastic, and so was a fresh beef. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! <laughs>
0: yeah, man. Dude, way to go. I'm so glad you got to do that. And that's why, you know, for our listeners out there, uh, you know, usually we're we're, we're dropping episodes the 1st and 3rd Mondays of the month, and that's why we're a few days late this episode because we wanted uh to not not interrupt Brandon's uh awesome well-earned vacation. And then uh obviously you got you <laughs> you had I can't imagine what your inbox looked like
1: when you got back. It's uh it's been a fun 48 hours, I tell you. Yeah, that much.
0: I'm sure you've been, been working your butt off, but uh yeah. hopefully hopefully you'll
1: have another vacation here before too long. I'm I'm planning one for sooner than later. Good. Once <laughs> you get awesome. the bug you have to go again. I yeah, so. absolutely true. How was your past week, Tony? Good, man.
0: We went to the I led a group to the Boundary Waters. Um which was super super cool. Um, we had a little bit of everything. We had heat and humidity. We had wind. We had thunderstorms. We had cold. Uh, we had headwinds. We had tailwinds. Man, it was it was just a great trip. We we covered about thirty five miles on water. We did twelve portages. Uh, we only got lost a couple times. <laughs> Uh, nobody was, got seriously injured. Um,
1: yeah, good. You experienced great. all the things you need to experience in the boundary waters. Yeah, so, totally, everything
0: you want. totally. It was super, it was super cool. And, uh, it was, yeah, it, the, the nice thing is, I mean, it's drought conditions everywhere, you know, there, there's been very little rain. Uh, as a result, there were very few bugs which was uh, super nice.
1: That is fantastic. Any yeah. uh, Anything memorable that sticks out for you? You
0: know, we went to a place called Eddy Falls, where, where I, I've been once before, and it's just was so great. You know, we're like three days in. Everybody's hot and sticky and sweaty and nasty, and you can go in this falls, and there's like these kind of naturally carved-out chairs. You can sit in these spots and the waterfall just rushes over you. Oh my gosh, it's I can close my eyes and and I'm back there in spirit. Uh it, it's a wonderful it was a wonderful place and a nice surprise because it's tucked back in the woods so you can hear it as you're paddling up to it, you can hear the roar of the waterfall but you can't see it. So uh yeah, it it was it was that was a highlight. There were many highlights, but that was one of them.
1: Sounds yeah. sounds amazing. Hope you yeah. got some, some shots of that.
0: Well, my my guest this week on The Reverend Hunter is Brian McLaren, who is probably well-known to a lot of listeners. He's a best-selling author. Um, He's a a world-renowned speaker and and expert on things like uh, the future of Christianity in the church. Um, He's written a bunch of books. Uh, He's been a dear, dear friend of mine since about 2001. So we go way back. I, I remember the first time... I met Brian, we were at a meeting at a Catholic retreat center outside of San Antonio, and we were walking on this trail that was the Stations of the Cross, like a lot of Catholic retreat centers have. And Brian, who had been an English professor and and w- was an established writer at the time, I just remember walking on this trail and and asking for writing advice. I had just signed a contract to write my first book. And i was of course terrified um and man he just was such a dear friend and and freely gave me a lot of really good advice on writing and since that day we've been close friends we have been to the boundary waters together in 2012 and you'll hear us reminisce about that a little bit um but we cover a whole range of topics uh about the environment about his love of the galapagos islands um, his, he's, he's gives some very practical advice on, on those of us who care about the planet and the environment and, and habitat for fish and game, what we can do. Uh, and, and even at the end talks about his latest book about, uh, how you can have faith, even if you're a person who harbors doubt. So all in all, it's just a wonderful conversation with a very, very dear friend of mine, Brian McLaren. And, uh, so Thank you for listening. Please hit that subscribe button. We would love it if you got every single episode and review us and rate us and share us on the socials. We'd appreciate all that, especially if you like this conversation with my dear friend, Brian McLaren. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining me on the Reverend Hunter podcast. It's been way too long since I've seen you in person and I, you know, had hoped that we would be doing this in person this uh, summer, but COVID and changing schedules and even even the class we were meant to co teach, the school didn't decide until too late whether we could even meet in person. So I, I missed yeah. I missed your presence in the boundary waters. And let me just say before we go on to we're in the middle of a kitchen remodel as as most listeners of this podcast know, because I talk <laughs> about it in every episode. And today the tiles being installed. So there's a huge circular saw upstairs and, and our tile guy, Rob, is uh, occasionally cutting. So I'll try to mute. But Brian, with, after all that, welcome to the Reverend Hunter
2: podcast. <laughs> so Tony, I'm happy to be here. I love listening. It's fun to be on with you now.
0: Um, tell us about the last fish you caught.
2: Uh, I actually went out on Saturday and caught a lot of small snook, you know, small meaning, uh, under 30 inches, probably 18 to 25 inches, something like that. And probably the best one was about maybe 25, 26, and then a couple of small tarpons. So that was a lot of fun.
0: Are you, um, out in your kayak? Is that how you're fishing for
2: these? So I have, a uh, pedal kayak, you know, that you kind of like a bicycle attached to a kayak. So, um, uh, I go out of my kayak out in the Everglades and, uh, and I'm fly fishing. Yeah.
0: I fished with you one time. Boy, that was a long time ago, many, many years ago. Uh, and it was so great. And then I invited you in 2012 to come up to the boundary waters with a seminary class. And as, as I recall, you took about one cast and you had a walleye up on shore. I mean
2: <laughs> Your fishing I, I actually,
0: prowess, your fishing prowess was on display.
2: Well, I I do remember we caught a very nice size largemouth bass that we cooked up and ate. Um, oh, it
0: was largemouth. And, I could have sworn and, you caught and, it.
2: Yeah. We, and and we caught a lot of pike too.
0: Yeah, there was there's some pike up there and yeah, I caught uh, we, I caught a smallmouth, and the another guy I was with caught a smallmouth. We went out at about five because you know in in June in Minnesota it's like the sun rises at five oh three and sets at about nine fifteen at night. So we got up early and then fried up that fish for breakfast, and there's nothing quite as good as that.
2: That's right. That's right.
0: Now you um. You're you're part of a little fly fishing crew of kind of theologian churchy people, right? Is that goes out west? Is that is that still a thing that happens in your life?
2: It still is, but I haven't been able to go the last several years. Um there's a group of fly fishermen who've been fishing in Yellowstone every year for a week or so. Um and I think they've probably been going thirty years now. Um the uh retired professor at Luther Seminary, Pat Kiefer, was the uh sort of, uh, uh, the launch for that. And then West Grandberg Michelson from the reformed church in America, who's also a great fisherman. Um, in fact, the first couple times I went, I was really just getting started in, in trout fishing. So huh. I, 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 learned a lot from those guys. So they still get together. Um, and I, I will join them the next chance I get, but this year I couldn't go because, uh, I will actually be in that area about two weeks later um, I'm going to be fishing. I'm going to be speaking at a beautiful place in Wyoming called Ring Lake Ranch, and uh, I'll be and I'll get a chance to fish while I'm there.
0: That's fantastic. I just found out this week that I did not draw a Wyoming antelope tag, sadly. Uh, and I was going to go with Don Payne, who whom you may remember teaches at Denver Seminary, and yes. was at some kind of early emergent church. He's he was a Guest on the podcast not long yes, ago. Yes, yes, I
2: remember. Yeah, yeah.
0: Such a great guy then invited me to uh, antelope hunt with him and was like, oh, everybody gets a a doe antelope tag every year. There's no competition for it at all. And then this year, yeah, of course, like everything else in the outdoors, uh, there's a lot of pressure on, on this kind yeah. of stuff. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing an uptick in – people out fishing in, in those, uh, lagoons where you like to fish?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I hardly ever see anyone Mm. on the places I go, but, um, they've closed two of the, uh, kayak access points in the Western Everglades that I normally use because I think they've been overused. Oh, so they're, they're, I having to balance that out and kayak fishing is becoming way more popular. There are lots more people out on the water.
0: Yeah. Um, Brian, did you, ever since I've known you, you've had a great passion for the outdoors and for natural things, um, both flora and fauna. Is that, is that something you grew up with? Did you grow up, uh, running around in the outdoors and fishing and hunting and that kind of thing?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with where I was born. I was born in Southwestern New York below the Finger Lakes. My dad was a doctor. He was a public health commissioner uh, in in a rural county where the main public health problems were hoof and mouth disease and rabies. Um, <laughs> so it was a rural, rural place. And my earliest memories are, uh, are out in the country, flipping rocks and finding snakes and crayfish and salamanders and, um, you know, seeing a robin's nest in the pine tree next to our house. And So I I just was one of those kids who just loved anything alive uh, from my youngest uh, memories. And what's kind of fun for me now is I I have five grandchildren, one grandson who has that gene as well. And it's just uh, so much fun seeing, sort of getting to share that joy with him and also feel like I'm getting a little glimpse of myself those years ago.
0: When you, you were, then how long were you a pastor in Maryland? 25 years or so?
2: Yeah, 24 years, yeah.
0: Did you have to, you know, I, I. it's funny, I I just came out of the Boundary Waters and I was with several pastors who were part of this doctorate ministry cohort. And, you know, a lot of pastors, and you spend so much of your life with pastors, coaching yeah. and encouraging pastors. So many pastors struggle to find any, avocation any hobby yeah Yeah. getting outside going to the gym doing anything other than like doing the ministry and going to their kids soccer games um yeah how how about you 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 raised four kids you were full-time pastor starting a church from scratch how did you balance that and, and, and stay connected to the outdoors
2: so uh Grace and I had four kids in six years. So there were a number of years where my weekends were taken up with soccer games <laughs> too. And, uh, of course that's outdoors. And I love that as well. Um, but yeah, there was there were, I don't know how many years, but quite a few years in there where it certainly wasn't easy to get away, but I was very fortunate in that I would take my kids out and, uh, uh, and, and they learned to love the outdoors too. So that became something we could share. Um, in fact, uh, there was a wetland in, um, in Maryland where I used to go, uh, with, you know, hip waders as soon as the temperature was above 50 degrees. And, uh, I would take my kids and they, you know, in boots and we'd find frogs and tadpoles and turtles and, you know, and, and see all kinds of amazing birds. And, uh, and my, one of my sons who's now, uh, closing it on 40, uh, he's still, now he has two girls and he takes them to that same wetland. Oh, that's And in awesome. fact, uh, they, they FaceTimed me, uh, the uh, last two years when they were out there and let me sort of share the experience with that's them. That's so cool. Yeah. Just a what, great thing.
0: What do you think that is? I mean, I know you and I both have this shared love of the outdoors yeah. and- you know, it does it does concern me that so many people who are in ministry are, you know, out of c- contact with rural yeah. places and with yeah. natural places. You know, like so many other, like yes. so many other professions, the the ministry yes. that used to be so real. I mean, what percentage a hundred years ago of pastors were in rural areas?
2: That's right, maturity, and now it's a very
0: sure. urbanized. Profession. Yes. The seminaries are all, all the remaining seminaries are, are in yes. urban places. Yeah. The people who go into ministry, it seems to me, the people I know are urban type people. They don't want to yeah. go to rural places. Yeah. Do you ever think about is, is there a danger in that for the profession oh of my ministry? Gosh.
2: You know, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago with uh, your help. We were sort of I wouldn't have done this with, if not for you. But called the Galapagos Islands: A Spiritual Journey, and I talk in there about what I call uh, a, a wild theology as opposed to indoor theology. And uh, and and I I think there's so much in the whole Christian tradition that has biased people toward a world of libraries and screens and books uh, all of which are square (laughs) and straight lines and 90 degree angles and uh and there is and and the irony of this is that you know christian theology also tells us in fact i just came across this quote again the other day and it was even stronger than i remembered it being where uh, thomas aquinas said the first book that god inspired was the book of nature and uh and you know he, he even went farther as to say. You know why are you, why are you so busy reading other books when you haven't read that book? You know, so you realize that if there's the the kind of logic and uh, and wisdom of God is woven into the natural world, something is very wrong. I I think it helps explain so much of what's wrong with the Christian religion and other religions too when they become indoor, uh, air conditioned and heated phenomenon.
0: Well, what what kind of uh, an, antidote to that do you think there might be?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I mean, there's wonderful groups, like there's a group called the Wild Church Network that's helping people start churches that happen outdoors, oh. that happen on walks and things like this. I think it's brilliant and important. Um, Traditionally, churches had summer camps and retreat centers, but so many of those are closing because kids are more interested in video games, which, you know, uh, there's a whole lot we could say about that. But um, uh, but I, I just think that part of the disaffection that younger generations are having with the Christian religion, especially in a world where every sane and aware person knows that climate change is real and is beyond a uh, a problem or a threat. And it's a catastrophic reality um, that, that we're having to cope with already. And that's only going to get worse, even under our best case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Anyone who knows that knows we need a spirituality that's more in touch with the natural world. And, uh, and, and I just think that it's going to require a phenomenally deep and far-reaching change. I, I personally think that anyone who goes to seminary ought to spend an extended amount of time living among the poor because I don't think a person who's supposed to be a representative of uh, the God of the poor uh, should live without having actually lived among the poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And then secondly, I think nobody should be able to be called uh, a a pastor or a spiritual leader without having spent significant time very close in a close relationship with uh, with nature.
0: Yeah, I uh, I I know you're familiar with um like the farminary experiment at yes. Princeton yeah. Seminary and I think there's some other yeah, urban uh seminaries that are doing you know buying uh, food plots and um yeah. you, you know urban garden type deal just to get their students outside for one thing, but also yeah. to you know to then try to bring fresh produce into places, urban environments that aren't yes. you know known to be food deserts and stuff like that. So it seems that yeah. seems like a hopeful trend.
2: It oh, there there are some really hopeful trends like this. I, I mentioned Wild Church Network, they're connected with something called Seminary of the Wild, where they're they're de- developing experiences to help uh, people develop a kind of spiritual literacy of of the wild. And, and even before these uh, ventures, you might remember Wesley Seminary in D.C., they were the only seminary that did this. You couldn't uh, get your MDiv without taking a, a semester art course mm. because the idea was if you aren't connected to creativity, um, how are you supposed to have any deep understanding of the creator, of the creative mm-hmm. spirit? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, it, it, there's something akin to this that I think will change as, as, uh, I think it will change in certain sectors of the Christian religion and, and probably other religions too.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, last week, um, you, you, you know, the syllabus for the class I yes. taught in the Boundary Waters last week, cause you helped create it and put several yeah. books on it. Um, we read you know, while we were there, the students had read in advance, but they presented um, book book reviews basically on various books, including Bill McKibben, um, yes. you know, Leonardo Boff, uh, Sally McFaig. You know, some of these, well, it, it, I will say this, and this, I, you're a hopeful person. And that's one of the things I've always really loved and appreciated about you. I'm I'm not wired up to be as hopeful of a person. I'm a little more cynical. And I know you've got your, your cynical parts, but in general, you seem to have a pretty optimistic view of the world. But reading these books, it's it can yeah. be real depressing, especially, yeah. Brian, because it's becoming more and more clear that us, Courtney and Tony, Brian and Grace – Sorting our recycling and composting our organics and driving hybrid cars isn't really going to make a difference in climate change. So, and we, one of the books we read, which was a fascinating book, is called Eco Piety, which makes the argument that we're being lulled into uh, a belief that we're really making a difference because we sort our recycling or we drive a hybrid when the fact is, you know, it's, it's massive commercial enterprise and industrial manufacturing and things like this that are really causing climate change. You've thought about this so much, more than I have. Where do you currently stand on this issue of climate change what we can do about it it is really the only potential change going to come from governmental policy change i know you work with politicians a lot so just kind of an open-ended question about here we are in 2021 yeah what where do you find hope
2: yeah yeah well i i everything I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm answering the opposite of that question. Where do I find despair? But let me say that because it needs to be said. Um, uh, Anybody who doesn't struggle with despair doesn't, hasn't done their homework. Uh, Anybody who finds it easy to be hopeful is just uninformed. Uh, We are, are. We're past our toes hanging over the cliff. We're past our arches. We're, we're past our heels being over the cliff. Um, the, what is now inevitable? We're in the situation with the environment that we were with COVID at the end of February or the beginning of March of uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. The, the masses hadn't let it uh, sink in yet. They, they maybe heard about it, but it hadn't begun to sink in. And even when, uh, you know, in March, everything began to shut down, people said, well, maybe we'll be back to normal by July. Maybe we'll be back to normal by September. And of course, even though in the U.S. we're getting close to normal now, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Africa and Asia and, you know, huge parts of the world, they haven't even reached the worst uh, of the pandemic yet. And so, we have to realize that the same science that accurately predicted that the pandemic would be bad is already telling us that the chances of keeping uh, our global temperature two degrees Celsius higher than than our recent average are we've it's virtually nil right um and and it's not just that it's that what that means for the extinction of species they're already is what people call the, you know, the anthrop- anthropogenic mass extinction that's happening. Um, you know, in parts of the world, 40 to 60% of insect biomass is just gone. Hmm. And people don't tend to love insects so they don't miss them. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you, you just, whether it's fish or soils or amphibians or, you know, clean, uh, fresh water, uh, the problems are absolutely devastating. Now I do think it's important to recycle and use solar energy and consume less gas just because that's the right way to live with the earth Mm -hmm. to the degree that we can afford it. And, and it's, it's doable, but the answer is political. And, and right now every indication is that our politicians, the best of them are fools. Um, and when it comes to climate change, uh, not the best. There are a few great ones. You know, in Congress, if people want to see an example of a Congress person who understands climate change, look at Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. But uh, one honest and smart Sheldon Whitehouse compared to the whole state of Texas, you know, uh, is is just, uh, it breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, So political action is necessary. And uh, it will eventually come, and it will come far too late to avoid uh, terrible human suffering in addition to environmental plunder. It's already too late, yep. uh, but that's, that's where we are. So w- where is my hope? Well, uh, Joanna Macy said something years ago, um, anyone who tells you everything is going to be okay doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> And anyone who tells you that there is no hope and all is lost doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and so I think we have to have all due urgency. Um, I think we have to have a certain kind of panic. I mm-hmm. think we have to have a certain kind of fury and rage. And I think we have to not foreclose upon uh, uh, on, on things, on, on there being surprises. I'll just say one other thing. I know I'm going on a rant No, here. no, it's
0: great. It's good.
2: But- When you want to talk about being cynical, let me be really cynical. I suspect that slavery would not have ended if people hadn't discovered oil. Mm. Um, Because in a sense, first coal and then oil and then natural gas gave people an even cheaper source of profit than enslaved human labor. Like, I wish it were true that the human species really had gone through a moral awakening about slavery. And we did in certain sectors. But uh, the fact that it actually became cheaper to do things by machine helped profit greed driven people to Mm -hmm. have that awakening. (laughs) And so I am not a techno optimist, but I think technology has a part of the solution, as does economics, as does politics. As does preachers, as does hunters and fishermen who start seeing the changes. And, you know, you and I both know a whole lot of the hunters and fishermen out there are deep red Republicans yeah. whose, whose politicians make fun of caring for the environment, who, whose, whose po- political leaders are idiots and fools. Um, and I mean that like in the technical sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not just calling names. They, yeah. they, they fulfill yeah. the definition. Um, they have no foresight. They're owned by money. They're corrupt. They're craven. But if enough of those deep red Republican hunters and fishermen will speak up because they see the duck populations plummeting or they see the trout dying in the streams, that helps probably more than uh, you know a, a lefty liberal like me speaking up.
0: Well, then what, uh, okay, if if policy change really is the answer to somehow if not stop the impending apocalypse, yeah. uh uh sand some of the sharpest edges off of it. What should a citizen do? Like what kind of policy change should we advocate for?
2: Yeah, I well, it it's if you want a really simple answer, find the greenest candidate in every election and vote for that person. Uh, Let me say the greenest candidate who has a chance of winning. Um, uh, and you know, some people might say, even if they don't have a chance of winning, I, uh, maybe that's true in some cases, but I think you should look at your available options of anyone who has a chance of winning, who's the greenest candidate. I think it means every chance you get to speak to a politician when they're running, every chance you get to write letters, all that, do all that stuff. I, like I, I live in Florida. I mean, you can see why I'm cynical, consider Marco Rubio and Rick Scott as, you know, our, our senators. I know. Um, So they're, they're on my phone speed dial and I just call them and leave a message whenever I can and whenever an issue comes up and uh, you know, I, am sure my voice isn't heard, but I'm doing, I'm doing what I can with that. But uh, I think that's the biggest thing. We've got to just vote for the candidates who get it and then put pressure on them. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm a huge fan of the green new deal uh, and things that people say are unrealistic. I just think when you hear the word unrealistic, just say to yourself, there's a lack of imagination because to say in the 1840s that the abolition of slavery was, was a possibility within 15 years, anyone would have told you that was absolutely unrealistic. Um, but it happened. And, uh, and the same thing, so many examples of this yeah it it it's unreal, it's impossible, then it's unrealistic, um then it's extremist, and then it's done.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. My daughter took a class at middlebury, um the home of Bill McKibben, yes, that's uh, right, um on environmental policy, and she thought that she was going to, she will say this, the first half of the semester was very depressed, depressing, and she was in deep yeah. despair, but they turned the corner in the second half of the semester. And it was really about, you know, the potential for some kind of technological um, solutions yeah. uh, to the problems that we have, which of course are alternative energies and things like that, but um, or, Working to save the oceans, Uh, so I I tend to agree with you that human ingenuity is a great thing and 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 may potentially be the solution. But I too worry that it's too late. You know that it's and
2: and it won't be the solution. I mean, our trajectory. Look, I live at the edge of the of the Everglades, one of our last remaining wilderness areas in the East Coast, and. Everybody acknowledges a unique ecosystem. Um, our county has been, w- w- I've been involved in so many protests uh, over the years because our county wants to start fracking the Everglades. I mean, oh, the idiocy of this. its But of course, there's people who make a buck and they yeah. give money to their politicians, which is another whole story. Um, uh, let me just go on this tangent, Tony. Yeah. One of the other things I think we have to do is we have to become realize that political activism is neutered when politicians are owned by business interests. And so then the only, only power that we have left is what I would call economic activism. Um, and this is a field that, you know, 1960s activists did such amazing things, but the world has changed. And the, the, the activists of the 21st century are going to take really seriously things like boycotts and boycotts and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and corporate shaming. I mean, there's just no other word for it, but I think it becomes really, really important. Um, well, we, we saw
0: it, it in our lifetimes, you know, divest, divesting from South yes. Africa broke apartheid. Yes. Like that's ultimately yes. what broke apartheid, right?
2: Yes. And in fact, Bill McKibben has been one of the leaders of the divest invest movement. I, I've been very involved with that as well. And it's hugely important. So this is something everybody can do. You can, you know, if, if, if you're fortunate enough to have savings and you have stocks or mutual funds, it is really easy to talk to whoever your financial advisor is, or, or you know, you can do this yourself and just find a green fund. There, there weren't very many 12 or 15 years ago. There are so many, and they do great. And in fact, a, a lot of us believe that anything connected with, with fossil fuels will eventually go over a cliff. And all of your investments that are in fossil fuels will go over a cliff. And and so people who start getting away from that now <laughs> will be better off longer run. Yeah.
0: I mean, the one thing I, I'm sure will solve it, but air travel seems like the one thing that's going to be a challenge. And I mean, probably less than you used to, but you're a guy who gets on a lot of airplanes. And I used to yeah. get on a lot of airplanes, not so much anymore. How do you personally reconcile that or do you do you do carbon offsets or, you, you know, your yeah. your air travel? How do you do that?
2: Well, look, one of the gifts of COVID is that, uh, you know, it accelerated the shift to Zoom and other form uh, other online platforms. So I don't think I think that's going to become a permanent feature of my life. I'll continue to travel some, I think, but a lot of my traveling will be virtual now um, and largely because of a conscience about this. But. Um yeah I I pay for, I buy carbon offsets and I you know uh, uh, I uh in fact I continue to pay my carbon offsets at my normal rate even over this last year just cuz you know why not um but uh air travel is actually a small percentage of of global emissions um and you know the the biggest uh, agriculture buildings and business are, are the three big uh, three biggest ones and uh, and they're the areas that are, are big gains uh, could be you know we could see big gains yeah. and then add to that just regular transportation of automobiles and so on. So technology will be an option for us. Yeah. You probably heard you know that the Ford uh, 150 truck they just came out of the electric version yep. and and there's going to be two or three tipping points that are really going to be significant um i uh, in that regard so and and this is a way that you know people who care about the outdoors and people love to spend time in the outdoors will be able to be be leaders in this
0: yeah i i i drive an f150 and i would happily switch to an electric the 400 mile range makes me a little nervous because yeah. i you know do i i go way out and drive yeah. around all day and yeah um but i'm sure that's those that's going to change. I mean,
2: those numbers will change. The yeah.
0: batteries are going to get better and better, the refueling stations are going to get more and more uh ubiquitous, yeah. you know.
2: We're we're probably you know with electric vehicles where we were 100 years ago <laughs> with with uh, internal combustion yeah, engines. So yeah, right. we'll see, I think we'll see rapid we'll see rapid change. But you know, Tony, this really at the end of the day, though this comes back to Something that I think, and I, I think you'd agree, is a deeply, you know, spiritual matter. As a former pastor and a person who works in the religious industrial complex to a degree, I, I just think this is where spiritual leaders have to teach people to actually love the earth, mm. and actually love living creatures, and actually love the creation. And and without that, we we won't save what we don't love. If what we love is money, then we'll save money and destroy the environment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So.
0: Um, Okay. Speaking of love, you love the Galapagos islands. Yes. A place I've never been, but of course, I was deeply immersed in your book in editing it. Love that book. Uh, We'll put a link to all your books in the show notes, but take us on an on an you know a, a brief audio journey of the Galapagos and what it is that you love about it so much
2: sure um, well, f- first it's it's a uh, you know a group of islands, an archipelago about six hundred miles west of Ecuador, right on the equator. and y- you could just think of it that uh, it's not easy to get to, and human beings didn't even show up there until kind of the Age of pirates and global, you know the the uh, the beginnings of the global trade through shipping. Um, and as soon as humans arrived, they started having a devastating impact uh, on the islands. Yet, because they were so remote, the impact was limited. Um, for example, a lot of people think that the reason there are giant tortoises on the islands is that on islands things become giant. Actually, usually on islands things become dwarf. Um, what happened is there used to be giant tortoises on every continent, except, well, maybe eventually somewhere back there in Antarctica too, I don't know, but, you know, um, and and wherever people went, tortoises were the first thing to get eaten. Uh, so uh, the fact that there were giant tortoises, there was just a sign that no humans had been there. Um, but then in the 1950s, people started realizing what a special place it was and in the 1960s, they started preserving it. And it really is an example of a place that was saved from the brink, kind of like we're talking about the whole planet, and ha- has, um, you know, had remarkable uh, conservation efforts there. So it's both what's left of the natural beauty of this place, plus the story of successful conservation. You put those two together, and it makes it an amazing amazing place to visit.
0: Tell us, it's quite a journey to get there. As you've said, it's hard to get to. How, how does one even get there? And then, you know, what do you experience once you arrive?
2: Oh my goodness. Well, it's actually not that hard to get there uh, in in a sense that you're going to have to fly to either Quito or Guayaquil, Ecuador. Um, But there are lots of flights to Quito and Guayaquil from, you know, uh, major airports in the U.S., and um, and then from there you fly to the Galapagos. Um, so getting there is a lot easier than it used to be. Um, when you get there, you have three choices. You can just you know make a hotel reservation and figure everything out on your own. Um, I I I could do that now that I've actually been there three times now. So um, I could do that now. I wouldn't though. Um, the the two main ways to do it are uh, to either get uh, uh, to travel on board a ship, um, and that's the way I did it the first two times I went, or to do a land-based tour. And that's the last time I did. I went a land-based tour. And it turns out they're both great ways to do it. Mm -hmm. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. But your experience on a boat is you travel by night. So the boat motors from island to island by night you get up in the morning and everyone who visits the islands has a guide there. You, you aren't allowed to go into many of the places without a guide. Um, and the guide takes you out on a hike and you'll hike up a volcano or you'll walk through some coastal scrubland, and, and, uh, super knowledgeable. All the guides are really well prepared and mm-hmm. they love the land and that's contagious. That's part of the greatness of the experience to have a great guide, as you know, from hunting or fishing, um, you know, a, a great guide makes all the difference. Um, and you just one of the great things is the guides all know they they first they tell you a lot, but then they just shut up and they let mm. you wander around and come to them with their questions and uh, with your questions. And so it's this social experience with your other travelers and with a guide, and then observing, you know, land iguanas and marine iguanas and uh, tortoises, and and then. Uh, the the ship based trips I've done, we would spend anywhere from two to four hours a day snorkeling. And so that's another whole realm of experience that's just breathtaking and beautiful and uh, yeah and 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 on top of the amazing animal life and plant life, uh, you've got a volcanically active region with just really interesting geology too. so it's it's sort of a chance to practice getting used to, Enjoying your earth as if you had traveled across space and uh and were visiting a new planet for the first time.
0: Now, is it one of those things those of us who love places, like yeah, you love the Galapagos, I love the boundary waters, I love yeah. talking about the boundary waters. Yes. I don't think everybody should go to the boundary waters. In fact, yes uh because of COVID and people going outdoors more and people having more money in their bank accounts because they are not going out to eat and because the yes. Canadian borders closed, the pressure on the um on the uh boundary waters has been intense too much, you know, and yes. um people are having a hard time finding campsites and then I mean I yeah. we were at a campsite where there were several young trees had been cut down, and yeah. were by the fire pit. Yeah. And it's like, well, you you can't even burn these. Yeah. These aspen are yeah. green; they're not. You're not, <laughs> not going to be able to burn these for two years. Like, what what are these people yeah. doing? You know, um, all that to ask, like the Galapagos is that something you tell everybody should go because it'll yeah. change your or be like, no, 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 just read no. read my book about it. Don't go; it's got enough okay. pressure on it already.
2: Well, in fact, it's one of the reasons, as you know, that I wrote the book, uh, is, is to give people a kind of vicarious experience. And then I end the book by saying, look, the place you already live is pretty amazing yeah. if you ever took the time to explore it. And that's in many ways the purpose of my, my, you know, one of my goals in the book is not to say go here. It's to say, uh, maybe by this imaginative, imaginative experience of reading, it will help you develop a way of seeing to see where you already live. Mm-hmm. You know, I I lived many years in Washington D.C. area. Right in the middle of Washington D.C. is something called Rock Creek Park. You know, it's an amazing park. Um, uh, I mean, Central Park in New York. It's kind of an amazing yeah. thing yeah, that, that that exists. Is an amazing place. And, and where everyone lives, there are things to discover and places to enjoy. And uh, you know, obviously, some are more uh, fortunate than others by the natural beauty that's accessible to them. But, uh, but yeah, to wake up to where you already are is what really counts. The Galapagos have two things going for them, 600 miles from the, uh, from a continent. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's a world heritage site. So the number of tourists that are allowed there a year is strictly limited. Yeah, sure. Um, and you know, they've developed a, um, a pretty healthy balance um, you know, the, and the, it get you see it in the papers. There are conflicts between the local uh, uh, Galapaguinos and the Ecuadorian government that's trying to uh, re- to enforce environmental rules. Conflicts come up from time to time, but by and large, it's a pretty neat thing. The people love and appreciate the beauty of their land. They know that their economy depends on tourism, and so it's it's a place that's achieved a better balance than many.
0: Mm-hmm. um okay you've already mentioned them they have to do with the galapagos but you have a love of tortoises
2: <laughs> i really do
0: do you have some is still at your in your backyard i do
2: in fact i, I just uh, i i have 15 babies that were born this spring so i'm uh selling them to somebody uh, so <laughs> yeah.
0: what is it about tortoises what's what's the fascination
2: Well, I mean, the truth is, Tony, I just am fascinated with all living creatures and I'm fascinated with uh, like birds are, I I think they're my first love. I just, I'm absolutely intrigued by birds Mm. and um, obviously I love fish. And so I, I really love just, I'm just intrigued by living creatures. I mean, if I can say it spiritually for me, I just feel like every life I encounter, I'm encountering another face of God or another Mm. face of Mm. the holy or the divine or the mystery. And, uh, and they're all unique and wonderful. Um, but the truth is it's, uh, when my kids were little, we had some box turtles that lived in our yard and, um, uh, and you know, they were of interest to my kids and pretty soon they were laying eggs. And pretty soon I found out I was pretty good at uh, breeding these things. And mm. so I take the babies of some and trade them for something else. And so it's, and it's nice for a guy when I travel a lot, they are creatures that can live in my backyard and <laughs> don't require you know me to be there yeah. every single day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to a put dog. Their food. You,
2: you can't do that with a dog.
0: No, no. And you probably don't have to carry their poop around in a plastic bag when you're walking with exactly them. Exactly
2: right. <laughs> exactly right. And literally, they eat the grass. That like my backyard doesn't need to be the lawn to be cut much because they, they eat the grass and the weeds. So,
0: yeah, I've thought about getting some goats or something in our backyard or taking them up to the cabin to to try to beat back the buckthorn. We've got Eurasian buckthorn uh, as an invasive uh, in our you know an. It's just – it's another never – and we're working with a DNR forester trying to fight this back. And, you know, you've been up there, so you know the the love I have yeah. of that land, yeah.
2: I know the love you have for the land, and I know the struggle with invasive species living down here. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. It, and, I just – it's, it's just
0: – I saw something about a Burmese python uh, million-dollar hunt or something like that for in the Everglades um, because yeah. there's another – invasive like uh, those are pets right that people have released into the everglades
2: yeah I, yeah i mean it's not quite that simple um there was a hurricane back uh you know 30 years ago or more um that blew down a facility of, of an importer so hundreds oh. if not thousands, thousand of them escaped so it gave it kind of a head start okay but um but where i live uh you know we have burmese pythons i've i've only seen two alive and maybe four or five dead on the road but they're they're around they're incredibly secretive and you know they're there because you used to see raccoons and opossums everywhere and you hardly ever see one now Wow! Um, uh, same with the marsh rabbits yeah. um so uh they're they're around and uh you know but florida's just the haven for uh in, invasive species yeah yeah the, the the island where I live, uh, we used to have this little lizard called a green anole that was super common. You'd see them everywhere. Then uh, a Bahamian anole got imported. It's a brown little lizard, and they replaced the green anoles within, I don't know, a couple decades. Wow. And then I've lived in my house. This is my 12th year here. When I moved here, there were brown animals everywhere. We just had a new lizard called the curly tail lizard come in. And now I hardly ever see a brown animal. And within three or four years, it went from zero to now it's the dominant species. So it's kind of like you just get to see in front of you <laughs> yeah. how these invasive species yeah. um, compete and replace each other. And you just realize how dynamic everything is, you yeah. know. Yeah. And 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 that adds to our own. Then you realize that we human beings are kind of an invasive species too, and we uh, really change <laughs> every place. Yeah, I we mean, talk.
0: I said this to the class last week in the Boundary Waters. The hum- human beings are the most, uh, you know, successful invasive species on the planet. You yeah. know, we've we've taken we, and we and and like invasive species, we change the environment to suit our own needs yes. and survival. That's what we do. Yes.
2: And and uh, and this is sort of our opportunity. And this is like this to me, the kind of evolutionary turning point we're in. Because as a species, for the first time we're having to say, we can't go West anymore. Um, even though, you know, the dreams of colonizing Mars and so on, in some ways play into this idea, we'll use up one planet and then we'll exploit another one. But, you know, realistically and practically there's no new places to exploit and destroy so for the first time we're going to have to deal with our population we're going and we're going to have to say we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to other creatures to create places where we won't interfere yeah um, and that's yeah. that's a that's a big deal
0: yeah well before i let you go i want to talk to you about your latest book because um As long as I've known you, it seems like your, your literary career is, is a trajectory. Um, I think a lot of people in our world, they find, uh, they find kind of a pattern Mm -hmm. and they, they're like, Oh, I'm good at writing that type of book. And my readers like that type of book. And they, you know, um, they, then they write that same type of book. It's got the same number of chapters. It's based on a sermon series they did. It's got the (laughs) exact same number of pages. You know, every chapter starts with a cute anecdote. And you know, you've, you and I have read dozens of books uh, like this. You, that's not been your career, um, which I appreciate. And, And it's not been my career. And in some ways, I think I've tried to probably emulate you in that. You really follow your passion. Mm. And of course, like any of us trying to sell books, we also need to write books that readers are going to want to purchase because, you know, it's the kind of thing they want to hear from us. Um, But tell us about your latest book and what led you to write it and why at this point in your life, and your career, and in your spiritual journey, you've written this.
2: Yeah. So, um, uh, well, in some ways, 2016, I think, was a wake-up call for an awful lot of people. Um, this sense that – well, let me fast forward to 2017 when, as you know, I was invited to be part of the clergy counter-protest in Charlottesville, Virginia. And and you can imagine this, Tony. Um, I, I mean, you know, I'm 65 years old this year, um, but I, as a 60-something-year-old guy in 2017 – I never expected that I would walk down the street seeing people carrying Nazi flags. I never expected I would hear people chanting Nazi slogans. Um, I mean, that hits you as a wake up call, you know? And uh, so, and, and not only that, but I was privy to some of the dark web communications that were being exchanged by the, the right wing uh, you know, Proud Boys and the other and the militia groups, and the, it was called the Unite the Right rally. Um, and I, I mean, I saw the hate and uh, on, you know, in black and white on those screens of of the way they talk about their fellow human beings. So um, it, that was just a, a, a really um, a really huge wake up call for me, and watching religion get sucked into the phenomenon. Um, You know, you and I, we started our kind of collaborations together at a time where we thought it was possible to pry open religion a little bit and help religion to become more compassionate and more interested in justice and more honest and less uh, addicted to nostalgia and so on. Um, But here we just see this headlong rush into nostalgia and, and fantasy and all the rest. So you put all those together and it, it, it makes me realize that millions of people of good conscience are going to be sick of their religion and feel they cannot bear to stay in it one more day. And the only way they're going to be able to find anything of value in their religious heritage is by having permission to doubt major portions of it and sift through and say what they're allowed to let go of and help them figure out what's worth preserving. So that was what was behind this book, Faith After Doubt. Um, it's this awareness that it was, it's happening in me and it's happening in you know literally millions of people here in the United States. And it's happening in various ways around the world where people are saying, the religion I inherited had some wonderful treasures, some wonderful gifts. And my gosh, it had a lot of toxicity in it too. I, I don't want to promote both. <laughs> I just want to promote one of those two categories.
0: Yeah. Now, do you think this is, is this unique in the 2000 year history of Christianity? Do you think in other eras that people were doubting and had spiritual authorities giving them permission to doubt? That that seems uniquely modern to me. It doesn't seem like, it seems, yeah. What do you think about that?
2: I think it's complicated. And I think it's really hard for us to make comparisons with people in, in other historical epics, just because everything about their world was so different. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there really hasn't been a period in Christian history when secularism was a great option uh, until the last 250 years or so. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so we're, we're at a, a unique time, but have there been times when the Christian religion was corrupt um, you know, there have been Jerry Falwell's all the way through this thing. There have been, you know, Eric Metaxas's and Jeff- and Robert Jeffress's all the way through this thing. Um, and uh, in some periods, the corruption has been really heinous. Uh, and and it's so interesting, you know, because I think we were all taught both our theology and our Christian history by people who didn't know it very often, but they had a political and racial and economic agenda that had been so deeply bred in them that they weren't even aware of it. When you start breaking away from those, uh, that's, those sets of preconceptions, a little bit even, you start to see our history differently. So now I see, for example, the desert fathers as a, and desert fathers and mothers in a very different way. I see these as people who, say, who are saying the form of Christianity that exists is so corrupt and has lost its point. Mm-hmm. The only way we can preserve it is to go form communes out in the wilderness and try to re- reclaim our sanity a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and I, I become I think as 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 I age and see the direction that our planet is taking. You know that we're taking our species is pushing our planet and and the direction of Christianity people like the desert fathers and mothers have even more allure to me than they did before, but you still, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'll just ask it. Do do you still think Christianity is a faith worth pursuing?
2: So that's, so I wrote this book faith after doubt to sort of help people sort through that sort of thing. And then I'm just finished the sequel to the book that's called, do I stay Christian? Ah. (laughs) And, um, And uh, so I I want to be able to give you a simple answer to that question, Tony, but here's what I would say. I would say it depends. Um, (laughs) uh, Years ago, I I heard Terry Gross uh, interviewing a Muslim uh, guy, uh, uh, activist on her show. And she said, do you think that Islam is a peaceful religion? And he paused for a moment and he said, Uh, at times Islam has been peaceful, at times it's been violent. He said, a religion will be what its adherents make of it. Mm. And I think that's true words have seldom been spoken. Mm -hmm. So the Christian religion will be what we make of it. But here's the thing. The human race will be what we make of it. And the United States will be what we make of it. The planet. So suddenly you realize everything is in our hands to a degree. And that just ups the ante of both our, our own individual survival and our ability to communicate uh, some kind of vision and challenge and all, all okay. the rest to, mm-hmm. to other people. Mm-hmm. Well but but, but bottom yeah. line, bottom line, I do I think there are wonderful treasures in the Christian religion. And it would be a tragedy to surrender them to the people who right now have the loudest microphones. Yeah. In the same way that the boundary waters are an unspeakable treasure. And it would be a tragedy to let, you know, the developers, uh, come in and turn it into a parking lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amen to that. Well, thank you, my friend. It's always just a joy to see you talk to you. I, You know, our our paths don't cross as much as they used to, um, but I hold you very close to my heart and- it, it's it is a great joy to see you and and i know that you and i just share a lot of the same loves and commitments we do. yeah
2: and and i really hope we can uh the next few years can be different than the last few years and we can get get outdoors together and yeah, uh enjoy good. some of those shared experiences thanks, thanks Tim. all right brian thank you